In chapter 3 of Second Peter, the Apostle takes the time to focus on the prophetic scriptures and the promises of, of God's Word. But notice, however, how he begins the chapter in verses 1 and 2. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Peter begins by reminding believers that this is the second letter he's written to them. Notice what he says. This now is the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. Now, of course, the first letter is 1 Peter. And he tells them that in both of these letters, he had a common goal. He wanted to remind them of something important. So we read, so we read in, in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1, in both of them, he says, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Notice that the apostle wants to stir up their sincere mind. In other words, the minds that he is stirring up here to remember were minds that were right with God. These minds had been changed by God's Spirit. Those to whom he writes has had the mind of Christ, and it was their purpose to walk in his way. Now notice next here in verse 2, what the apostle wanted to remind these believers about. Verse 2 says this, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So Peter's desire here is to remind the believers in his first letter and in his second letter of two important things. The first is the predictions of the holy prophets, and second, the commandment of the Lord through the apostles. Now first, the predictions of the prophets. These prophets, of course, were found throughout the Old Testament scriptures, and they spoke at the heart of God for his people. They predicted the Messiah who was to come, and they revealed something of the nature of the work and ministry of that Messiah. They were proof that Jesus was who he said he was. Now remember also that Jesus, too, was a prophet, and he spoke of the judgment to come, but also of the reward for those who knew him. And these prophetic words revealed the purpose of God on this earth and his ultimate goal for his people. Now notice the second thing that Peter wants to remind these believers of, the commandments of the Lord through the apostles. Peter doesn't tell his readers that they were to remember the commandments of Moses, but of the Lord through the apostles. Now, this point brings up an important question that has divided believers from the very beginning. 
What is the place of the law of Moses in the life of the Christian believer? So before moving on too far into this chapter 3 of Second Peter, I want to take just a moment to examine this question of the place of the law of Moses in the life of the believer from what Peter is insinuating here in verses 1 and 2. It's generally agreed by believers that the Christian is free from the law. The assumption is that we're not saved by our good works or our ability to follow the law of Moses. For example, an illiterate person in some faraway country who has never read the Bible or understood anything at all about the Old Testament can become a child of God. That individual does not have to know anything at all about the law of Moses to be saved. We could then venture even further to say that a person who has been a terrible criminal all their life can at the end of his or her life come to know Jesus and become his child, never having obeyed the law of Moses at all. We see, for example, the case of the thief on the cross who was being punished thereby uh, for, to death because of his crimes. But Jesus told him that very day that he would be with him in paradise. Now, the understanding of salvation apart from the law of Moses comes from a number of Bible verses. Consider, for example, Romans chapter 8 and verse 2, where Paul says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Romans 8 and verse 2. Paul tells the Romans that they've been set free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The implication here is that going to heaven and becoming a child of God is not based on how well an individual could follow the Old Testament law. Jesus declares that the religious Pharisees of the New Testament who observed the law faithfully would go to hell, but the thief on the cross would be with him in paradise. Consider also the words of Paul to the Romans in Romans chapter 7 and verse 6, where he says this, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The apostle tells us that we have been released from the law. He goes on to say that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and we no longer serve in the old way of the written code. The old way of the written code was the law of Moses with all its obligations, commands, and regulations. And, and clearly we see here that our salvation is no longer dependent on how well we observe the law of Moses as recorded in the Old Testament. Now, we all agree that we're not saved on the basis of how well we observe the law of the Old Testament. But let's take this a step further. To what extent does my relationship with God depend on how well I obey the Old Testament law? Well, to answer this, let me quote the words of Paul to the Galatians in Galatians 2 and verse 20 to 20 to 3 verse 3. This is what he says, Galatians 2, 20. 
I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Christ Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Now, what is Paul telling the Galatians here? He's telling them here that righteousness cannot be obtained by the law. And what is righteousness? It's a right standing with God. Do you think that you will be have a better relationship with God because you obey the law better than your brother or sister? Consider, for example, the the illustration of Jesus in Luke chapter 18, verses 10 to 14 in this regard. He says this, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to the, his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, one of the great lessons of that parable of Jesus is that my relationship with the Lord is not contingent on me being good, but on the grace of God who loves me even when I am bad. Now, throughout the history of the church, there's been a great debate about the role of the Old Testament law in the life of the believer. On the one hand, there are those who believe the New Testament believer is still obligated to the Old Testament law. So we have Christians who gather for worship on the Jewish Sabbath, such as the Seventh-day Adventists and others as well. We also have those who believe that the, the Old Testament dietary laws are to be observed by Christians in our day. Messianic Jews, those who have accepted the Lord Jesus, continue to observe the Old Testament holy days and Jewish customs. And so we have those who feel obligated to follow the Old Testament regulations and, and rules. Then we have those who fall somewhere in between, and they tend to modify the, the law of, of Moses. So, for example, they observe a Sabbath, but change the day and limit its application. For example, these 
believers feel the that the regulations of the Jewish Sabbath apply to Sunday. And I grew up in a home where as children we were not allowed to play or watch television or certainly not allowed to work. But of course, the Old Testament Sabbath law did not just apply to one day in seven, but to one year in seven and one year every seventh seventh or every 50 years. But those laws, those rules and laws are not applied to the modern Sabbath law uh, by these believers. There's a partial application of the Jewish law to a new day while ignoring at the same time the sabbatical years and the year of Jubilee that was all part of that Sabbath regulation. And then finally, there are those who feel completely free from the Old Testament law, and to them, the law of Moses has no part in the Christian life and has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Well, what does the New Testament teach us in this regard? What is our obligation to the law of Moses? Well, consider first what Jesus and the apostles taught in this regard. First of all, in regards to the food laws or the dietary laws of the Old Testament, Mark records this in Mark chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, the words uh, of Jesus. Then he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled, thus he declared all foods clean. Jesus' teaching here seems to run contrary to the dietary laws of the Old Testament. The Old Testament taught that certain foods were unclean and could not be eaten, but Jesus, according to Mark, declares that all foods are clean. Consider what Paul has to say about clean and unclean foods in Romans chapter 14 and verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Paul the, the apostle was persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing was unclean in itself. No food was unclean in itself. And Paul did not feel obligated to the dietary laws of Moses. Consider next what the Apostle Paul tells us about Jewish holy days in, in the Old Testament. Romans chapter 14, verses 5 and 6, he says this, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. 
The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Paul, in this passage, is telling us that it is perfectly legitimate to see all days as the same. Now, that was not the case in the law of Moses. Some days were considered holy, and you could do no work on those days. In fact, the death penalty was the punishment for anyone who did not refrain from work on those days. Paul makes it clear that there's nothing wrong with taking a day to honor the Lord, but he declares that there was nothing wrong with seeing every day as the same. In regards to the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, listen to what Paul has to say to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 19 and 20. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. The ceremonial practice of circumcision, according to Paul, did not count for anything. The writer to the Hebrews, speaking about the sacrifices of the Old Testament, has this to say in Hebrews 10 and verse 4, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Those sacrifices that took up so much of the Old Testament law have no value to save us or to forgive us, according to the writer of Hebrews. Finally, in regards to the laws of Moses regarding pure and impure, clean and unclean objects, Paul says this to Titus in Titus 1 and verse 15, to the pure, he says, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their conscience are defiled. And so Paul tells us that the idea of clean and unclean no longer has an application in the life of the believer, at least not as it had in the Old Testament law. Now, there's no question that as believers, we are free from the obligation and practice of the law of Moses. But Peter, however, writes this second letter for a very particular purpose. In verse 2, he says that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Believers are to remember the predictions of the holy prophets, but also the commandment of the Lord Jesus and Savior through his apostles. While no longer under the law of Moses, we are not without a guide. The word continues to speak prophetically to us today, challenging our lives. And the commandment of the Lord Jesus through the apostles still guides our paths. Now the writer to the Hebrews remind us that while we are no longer under the Old Testament priesthood, Jesus Christ himself has become our priest. He was not priest by the order of Aaron, as all the Old Testament priests were, but he was ordained a priest in a different order. And that 
priest bridge the gap between God and man. And, and our priest, priest today is our Lord Jesus Christ who bridges the gap between me and my heavenly father. And so there is a change of priesthood. No longer am I under the Old Testament priesthood, but under the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Consider what the writer to Hebrews then tells me about this change of priesthood in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 and 12. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. According to the writer of Hebrews, with a new priest comes a new law. And that law, according to Peter, is the commandment of our Lord Jesus Christ and Savior through the apostles. There are many similarities. The moral principles have never changed. The law of Jesus, however, moves beyond the outer action to the very thoughts and intentions of our heart. Consider the words of Jesus in this regard when he says in Matthew chapter 5, 27 and 28, you have heard it said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, You've heard it said, the Old Testament told you that, but I, the commandment of Jesus, tell you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The law of Jesus taught by the apostles requires much more than refraining from certain actions. These laws require a change of heart. And this is a work that can only take place through the inner working of God's Spirit in the life of the believer. It is a law that not only commands purity, but purity from the heart. That comes from the fullness of God's power to change the heart and life of the believer through the working of God's Spirit in them. While I no longer am under the law of Moses, I am under a greater law. And the difference is that the law of Christ is accompanied by the power of his spirit in me. He is able to transform my heart, my mind, my thought and attitude into the very image of Christ. Now let me conclude with a prophetic word spoken by the lawgiver himself, Moses who looking ahead, I believe, in time, had these words to say. For this commandment that I command you today is not too far for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But this word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. I believe somehow that the prophet 
Moses understood something of what was going to take place through the Lord Jesus Christ as he put his Holy Spirit within us to enable us in our very heart to do what we could not do under the law that he had proclaimed. The Spirit of God, through the new law of Christ, empowering and enabling us. And by the grace of God and the power of his Spirit in my life, this new law, will lead me to true satisfaction and delight in my Savior and his purpose.